Welcome to another episode of Simplified Ideas. I'm your host, Stephen Groskowski. On today's podcast, we'll be talking about the increasing concentration of economic power within Australia. So I've invited Lindy Edwards. She's currently an academic at the University of New South Wales as a senior lecturer in international and political studies. Previously, she has worked as an economic advisor in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, a press gallery journalist for the City Morning Herald, and a senior policy advisor to an Australian political party leader. At the beginning of 2020, Lindy released an incredibly well-written book called Corporate Power in Australia, Do the 1% Rule. This expertly dismantles the complexities of recent Australian events in politics over the past decade. As within her book, she explains how corporate power has risen and breaks it down into different elements showing how it is measured, the altercations between corporate power and government, and potential solutions to fix these issues. So without further introduction, let's begin. Hey Lindy, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So, Lindy, just before we start getting into the heaviest stuff of your book, would you mind telling us a bit about what you've been up to recently, what inspired you to write this book? The thing that initially sparked the book was simply watching what was happening on the news. A lot of the coverage was pretty limited. It looked like what was going on was pretty bad. And really, I wanted to dig in there and go, is it as bad as it looks? That was sort of my fundamental question was, is it as bad as it looks? I mean, I think we had a string of rolling scandals and a string of what looked like governments making opportunistic decisions. And that was around the banks, it was around the NBN, it was around things like the mining tax. And, you know, and I wanted to know what was going on behind the scenes and to see if, you know, I was hoping that there was kind of detailed, careful, good policy work going on behind the scenes and that it was just the headlines and the political argy-bargy that was quite that messy. So at the beginning of your book, you proposed the question that would later be answered, are are major corporations disproportionately winning in our political debates? And if so, why? Um, You then proceed to analyse seven of the most high profile cases in Australia within the last decade. So um, could you explain to us on what the Medici cycle is and how your book measures this business power that major corporations have? Okay, so what the Medici cycle's about, the thing that prompted this was that one of these sort of defining features of this, what's sometimes called the neoliberal era or this era of sort of free market policies has been that the top 1% have gained disproportionately, that as the economy's grown, the money's gone disproportionately to the very top. And I was interested in whether or not there was what's known as a Medici cycle occurring. And a Medici cycle refers to when economic power and political power become self-reinforcing. So you have these companies that become very big and very economically powerful, and they're able to turn that money into political power that gets laws and regulations that enables them to sort of further entrench their economic power. And so you get into this self-reinforcing cycle of power breeding power. And it's named for the Medici family, which um, was a famous family dynasty that dominated Italy in the Renaissance for 300 years, having tapped into this particular cycle very well. Yeah, interesting. So it's basically a self-perpetuating circle, which would only get worse and worse as it goes along. That was exactly my concern. That was what I was seeking to to test, to kind of going, is this 1%, the fact that they seem to be creaming off all of the wealth from this period of growth, are they, are they in this Medici cycle? That's right. And imagine the economic and political 
spheres if they're it's a hard balance to have it's like balancing a ball on top of another ball but and if it does start falling to one side um like the medici cycle for example then it would be kind of hard to stop so what would be one of the companies that was involved in this high profile cases so what i did was i looked at sort of 10 of our most powerful companies so it was actually nine of 10 largest companies on the australian stock exchange plus news corp so that was pretty much my proxy for the one percent was these these very largest companies so the companies were the big miners the big banks coles and woolies telstra and news corp in regards to the mining industry, you define different types of power that these businesses have. Would you be able to go through them? Okay, sure. So when academics look at corporate power, they tend to think of it as being one of three types. One type of corporate power, we call it structural power. And that refers to the fact that governments rely on businesses to invest, to make money, to employ people, to create prosperity. And so because of that, governments have got a vested interest, if you like, in ensuring that companies prosper and that they're profitable. And the ways in which companies can exert structural power is they can say, hey, look, you need to reduce wages, reduce our taxes, reduce our regulations, or we're going to take our business offshore. And so particularly over the last 30 years, we've seen businesses flex that muscle and they've really driven down corporate tax rates a lot, playing countries off against each other for the lowest tax rates. So that's what we mean by structural power. Then there's kind of the power of ideas. And this is often used to refer to the power of actually, actually the power of kind of free market ideas around globalization. The idea here is that you're having a debate about what's in the public interest and that these companies are able to dominate the public conversation about what's in the public interest and shape our understanding and of our beliefs such that we come to the view that we agree that what what's in their interests is in our interests. So that's kind of a battle of ideas thing. And these are, you know, and they're both quite different to what a lot of people immediately think of when they think of corporate power, which goes straight to corruption. And, you know, academics call that instrumental power. And that's the power of political donations, the power of sort of personal networks. And they call it the revolving door, which is people who move backwards and forwards between working for industry and working in politics and that that sort of set of insider networks. And what distinguishes instrumental power is that while, you know, you could argue that instrument that structural power is in the public interest, it's like, well, you know, if, if politicians make a decision to do stuff that encourages companies to invest and we all believe will value prosperity, then, hey, maybe that's that's in the national interest, even if it points to sort of structural problems that we should be worried about, about the nature of the global economy, our democracy is not failing. If the companies are winning the battle of ideas about what's in the public interest, that sort of points to a representational problem in our democracy. It says that some voices are getting heard and others are being drowned out, but it still points to us trying to have a conversation that's roughly in the public interest. But if it's instrumental power, where it is much closer to corruption, then governments are making decisions that can't be defended as being in the public interest and that points to our democracy being much much more unwell so just on that let's begin on talking about one of the high profile cases should we go into the mining tax and what just happened around then yeah, for sure. So the story with the mining tax is it's been recognised for a long time that there was a problem with how the whole mining royalty system, 
that the mining royalty system is basically the price that the mining companies pay the community for access to the resources. So we as a community own the minerals under the ground and the mining companies pay us to access those, you know, to, to take those minerals out of the ground and to go and process them and sell them. And the mining tax was a fight over what the right price was for the minerals in the ground. And it's been accepted or understood for a long time that there was a problem in the way that, that the minerals were priced because prices for minerals, commodity prices are hugely volatile. They'll go up and down by as much as 600%. So the problem with the old pricing system, it ran the risk of making companies unprofitable when prices were low, that the taxes would be too high when the prices were low. But then when you have these big booms in prices, they weren't having to pay, they weren't paying enough. And so it was an attempt to grapple with this, with this problem. So essentially trying to track the volatility of the of the commodity price without bankrupting them and with uh, at the same time getting the correct tax price for the sale of that commodity to other countries, for example. Yeah, that's right. A lot of commodities, the royalties rate was only sort of about two and a half or seven and a half and a half percent of the global price of the product. And and that was it needed to be that low for when commodity prices were low and they were barely making a profit. And if it had been higher than that, that would have pushed them out backwards. But if they're only paying two and a half percent of the global price and they're getting to keep the rest of it for themselves, when the price goes up by six hundred percent, they they take all the benefits from the, the boom in global prices and the community sees very little benefit from that global boom. So what ended up happening with this tax? Did it end up going through? So it provoked one of the most dramatic expressions of corporate power that we've seen in Australian politics in a very, very long time. That the Labor government decided, they they knew from their early consultation with the mining industries that the mining industry was going to fight any sort of attempts to make significant changes in this space. So what they did was they decided to spring it on the industry as a fait accompli. And they sparked this huge war from the major mining companies. The big miners, sort of BHP, Rio Tinto and Extrata, are big international mining companies. And they were particularly concerned that if this policy was adopted in Australia, that other countries, they also wanted to reform their royalty systems. There was this issue that if this tax was successful in Australia, that it would be rolled out around the world. So it made sense for these big companies to draw resources from across their global empires and target them at trying to bring down the Australian Labor government to stop this tax. And what they did is we saw them sort of launch into sort of all three prongs of different types of power. But on the one hand, they declared that they were going to abandon all of these projects and move offshore. And because they're such significant players on our stock market, that crashed our stock markets and created panic. It was reported, you know, in the Wall Street Journal and around the world as being this crisis that was occurring. They ran the battle of ideas as well. They had an enormous media campaign. They ran something like 1,200 ads over 54 days. There were something like 37 ads a day on commercial TV, sort of running the big miners' perspective. One of the things 
they did in that media campaign that was very clever was, you know, on the one hand, they had a reasonably simple message, which was that mining was very important to the economy, that it held up the rest of the economy, and that if we choked off mining, we were going to be hurting the broader economy. And to be honest, that argument didn't achieve much traction, that despite the fact they put out huge numbers of ads, public opinion didn't shift on that very much. But they had a second prong to their media strategy, which was that they set out to argue the problem wasn't that they were paying too much tax. The problem was that this was an incompetent government who'd put in something that the process had been bad, it wouldn't work in practice, that this was an attack on the competence of the government. And, they, you know, it's what in the industry is known as a FUD campaign, a fear, uncertainty and doubt campaign that uh, when your opponent's got a better argument than you do, what you do is you try and generate uncertainty and fear and doubt. And they did that really systematically. But, of course, it's a tax which is kind of complicated and detailed. And they got out there and they made, they attacked almost every element of the tax design, often making quite ridiculous claims. But it was enough to create a sense of confusion and fear and that maybe Labor had stuffed this up. And that was a much, much more successful campaign that actually Labor's polling fell really dramatically. They lost about more than 10 percentage points, I think, in a two-month period of people losing confidence in the Labor government. And then they also went in for the instrumental power. So there was huge political donations that they poured into the coalition. They ran um, marginal seat campaigns that mining actually only employs about 2% of people in Australia. But there are a handful of seats that are marginal seats that have got sort of significant mining jobs. And so they targeted those seats and were able to put to the Labor Party saying, look, even if this policy is in the national interest, even if the majority of people support it, you're still going to lose the election if you go ahead with this because of our marginal seat campaigns. And finally, they kind of drew on having deep networks into the political parties to push these arguments to convince the Labor government that really, to really generate a sense of crisis around the Labor government. And um, to the degree that, in fact, that Labor ended up deposing the then sitting Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, as it was seen that he couldn't fix this problem and that Julia Gillard was then installed into office basically to back down on the mining tax. So what uh, happened with Labor after that? So Labor, immediately after Gillard was in office, she said it was the very first first thing that she was going to do, that it was no longer time to consult, it was time to negotiate, and she was going to come up with a deal and settle this fight with the miners. And Labor rolled over really, really badly. They tried to conceal quite how much ground they gave, but it was enormous in the sense that, so the year that, that the tax came into effect, the mining companies brought in profits of about $200 billion. Labor argued that you know they'd set up the tax so it would be a slow start and things but it would build and that the tax take of that 200 billion was going to be 37 billion but then as the details of exactly what had been negotiated came through you know the estimates had got downgraded from 37 billion to 9 billion and the government actually only ended up receiving 88 million out of the 200 billion that the companies had made so quite an extraordinary route to put it in the context of thinking about everybody's talking about how enormous the stimulus is for COVID-19 but in fact you know the amount of money at stake in the mining tax was actually very equivalent to the amount of money that we're spending on the stimulus for COVID-19. 80 million, it's, a, it's basically an accounting error. I don't even think the mining companies would have even noticed or cared for that matter. Yeah. 
Less than 1%. Yeah. yeah, tiny. So in regards to the business powers that you mentioned earlier, how does this mining tax scenario stack up? So we actually see all three forms of power were absolutely at work here. Though the miners, they sort of endeavoured to leverage their structural power. But in practice, the tax had actually been quite carefully designed to make it harder for the miners to lose money. They were going to have to pay more in good times and less in bad times. And so this idea that this was going to force them to the wall and make them go offshore was absolutely not true. So they claimed structural power. They absolutely exerted huge structural power in in crashing the stock markets, but they weren't actually going to go offshore. On the the ideas power, their massive media campaign, the fear, uncertainty and doubt campaign, its huge impact on Labor's polling demonstrated that it was a real tour de force of that kind of power. But then again, similarly, with the political donations, the marginal seat campaigns, pulling out just how many former Labor, you know, Labor politicians had strong links into the mining companies, that it was also sort of, they pulled out all the stops on instrumental power as well. In this instance, I'd be inclined to describe policy outcome as a product of actually a really systematic tour de force. And I think it's really instrumental power because they've used these other forms of power in such a strategic and combined fashion to achieve that outcome. On the topic of political donations, uh, they're not completely 100% transparent, are they? No, it's amazing actually quite how bad the federal political donations laws are. You know, you and I might have assumed, and in fact, before I started doing this research, I assumed we're a first world democracy, we'll have a competent, you know, a basically functional set of political finance laws. But actually, we don't. When I actually went to go and dig through the political donations, it actually became apparent that actually there's only about 15% of the political donations transparently declared, that there's another sort of 15 to 25% that, that are in a grey area where there are accounting tricks are used to make it harder to work out who's paid the money and what counts as a donation. And then there's up to between 50 and 70% of the party's sort of privately sourced income, which we actually don't know anything about at all. That is uh, very interesting. So another example that you were talking about in your book is about the supermarket giants Coles and Woolworths and their fight against the farmers. Would you be able to elaborate more on this and what went on? Okay, so because Coles and Woolies uh, dominate the grocery market, you know, that about 70% of people's gross, of Australians' grocery spend goes through just these two huge giants. It means that for anybody who wants to be selling grocery goods, if you want to reach the mass market, you've really got no choice other than to go through Coles or Woolies. And that gives them enormous amounts of power. And they have been really strategic and systematic about trying to squeeze their supply chains so that they could maximise how much of the profit is realised in their own hands by reducing the prices that they paid pay to their suppliers. And they had a whole bunch of pretty dastardly ways of doing that, particularly around shifting risk onto the smaller businesses. So for example, they'd have requirements on farmers that they had to be able to meet the largest possible order. But then if they only made quite a small order, the farmers would just have to plough those those crops back into the ground and that the, 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 the supermarket wouldn't compensate them for that. 
they required the farmers to contribute to, you know, if stock went unsold, if it got spoiled or stolen in store, they'd have to pay for that. They had to pay for discounting and promotion. So if their stuff appears in Coles and Woolies ads, then they had to pay for it. When their products were on were on sale or were being discounted, it's not Coles and Woolies taking the haircut when something's 50% off. It's actually the suppliers taking that. So in all these ways, they went and pushed all of these things onto the suppliers. And the farmers had a few different goes at trying to take on the supermarkets through codes of conduct, through unfair contract laws, through abuse of market power laws. And it was extraordinary, given the evidence of wrongdoing and abuse of power of the supermarkets, the farmers were extraordinarily ineffective at getting effective law reform. That's right. They essentially created this ceiling for uh, medium to large size farmers to actually sell their product like if you're not going through our um, avenues, you're not selling your product as such. So they technically made their own rules. It would be like, um, you know, Facebook and their rules on their platforms and stuff like that. It's just it's sort of similar in that regard. What ended up happening? So there are a few, there are a string of big scandals that did have, you know, that did see the supermarkets being taken okay. to court and did see sort of various penalties being imposed. The farmers then tried to get a mandatory code of conduct applied to the sector. But it was sort of it was a scenario where the farmers wanted government to to write a code of conduct that was going to be mandatory, that was going to be enforced with penalties, that was going to have an ombudsman who was going to be well funded and on the job to go and police this on a day to day basis. And the supermarkets said, oh, look, seeing as you're dragging us through the courts and it's making us look bad, we'll go for a code of conduct, but we want it to be voluntary. We want to draft it. We want it to have no penalties. The only mechanism of enforcement being to take it through the courts, which means it'll very rarely get enforced. And so the battle played out that way, where the supermarket's preferences for a voluntary code with no penalties was what eventually prevailed. Right. And how have the farmers been impacted by this now? Have they recovered? Is there continued sort of attraction uh, towards the farmers' uh, benefit at all? So the farmers are continuing to struggle with it. There's a real concern around sort of the eroded profitability in farming and that basically people don't have enough money to invest in maintaining their farms or updating their technology or their equipment. So a fear that it's driving the Australian industry into a sort of low margins eroding its competitiveness kind of a scenario. That's right. That could be some serious long-term impacts from that as well for all of Australians. Based on those three uh, powers uh, mentioned earlier as well, how does this story align with that? So this one was, again, a really pure instrumental power sort of a story. There was no suggestion that Coles and Woolies were going to move offshore. There was no suggestion that um, when it came to, you know, were they being supported by free market ideas, they admittedly, I mean, they did have one strong argument in their favour, which was that by pushing down the prices paid to farmers, they could also keep prices down for consumers. But generally, the um, the competition watchdogs, you know, the people we tend to think of as advocating free market ideas, they were strongly advocating for the supermarkets to be reined in, for there to be sort of codes and conduct and greater restraints put on them. And I think that sort of points to it having been instrumental power, that really the, the government was told very clearly 
that the code of conduct that they were looking to put in place would be entirely ineffective at solving the problems and yet chose to proceed with it anyway. It seems with these two stories that we've talked about that there seems to be some trends happening. Uh, Would you be able to explain this powerful trend? Yeah, look, so um, the book starts with case studies that are sort of quite vigorously contested. But as the book progresses and you go further and further through these case studies, the pattern becomes really clear of just how hard it is to win the fights against these really big corporates. But at the start of this project, I was like, oh, you know, a win will be, you know, if they want heart, you know, if they they want this and the other wants that, you know, if you get a if you get an arrangement in the middle, well, that's half half was sort of what I was expecting. But by the end of the book, it's like, no, if you've got any small inroads onto the major corporates at all, then that counts as a win because those inroads are so rare. Particularly, it has to be said that the Liberal Party in particular was extraordinary in the degree to which it was captured. You know, the Labor Party did the sorts of things you'd expect a Labor Party to do on all of the cases except for the ones where Coles and Woolies were in play. The Liberal Party, on the other hand, to be honest, no matter how badly the big corporates were behaving and how bad the evidence was, they backed in the big corporates' preferences 100%. It was quite breathtaking. I was really quite shocked that it was that bad. Interesting. So at the end of your book, you posed some solutions to this. Would you mind going through some of them? So to be honest, it's pretty tricky, actually, to fix this problem. And I must say, it's one of these things I'm... You know, I'm sort of cautiously optimistic or hoping that maybe COVID's going to offer such a big shock that it's going to break up the status quo because as it was, you could just see this power becoming increasingly concentrated and as the, as people got more disillusioned and switched off politics, they were actually being able to get away with more and more. And it, I must say, I, before COVID, I was like, gee, it's it's tricky to see how this is going to, how this is going to, um, how we can fix this. But I think there are a couple of things we could do that would make a difference. One thing is it's quite clear that the major parties have become locked in parts of our political institutions. And as those parties have kind of decayed over the years, they've become quite small organisations that are quite easily captured. And we've got all of these branch stacking scandals that we're seeing at the moment you know, which highlight that a big part of the political struggle is if you can if you can capture the major parties, then you can kind of call the shot. And one of the things that struck me was in these fights, how often the crossbenchers in the Senate were really the major protector of the public and the extent to which actually on a lot of these issues, the far left and the far right of the minor parties in the crossbenchers were all on the same ticket. They actually all came together to go, look, actually, this isn't a left-right issue. This is just a right-wrong issue. And this is a clear abuse of power and we don't accept it. We don't tolerate it. And that sort of speaks to, I think, the value of the value of the minor parties and the value of shaking up the major parties that have got so captured by these interests. So one solution would be to um, would actually be to introduce proportional voting in the lower house so that it was easier to get minor parties into power and to really sort of shake up the major parties' grip on power to force them to be responding more to the electorate and less to their corporate donors. Is there anything that as individuals we could do to assist Look, I think a key thing to do would be to join a political party. I keep saying to people who, for people who want action on climate change, you know, consider joining the Liberal Party that, you know, that what we're seeing at the moment is we're seeing, you know, that particular 
you know, the Liberal Party in particular has been stacked with hard right groups and hard right interests. And actually, that's if everybody who wanted serious action on climate change went and joined the Liberal Party, we'd have the numbers. And that that's actually the level at which we perhaps need to be active. Yeah, so it's a matter of fact of just knowing what you want and actually going out and getting it as a such in a political sense. Just vote with a bit more information in mind. Yeah, I think, you know, Tony Windsor, the, that in, the independent, is famous for saying that um, the country's run by the people who show up. And the thing is that actually not that many people try to get involved in politics and that actually if you do roll up and participate, you can have a bigger impact than you think. Why do you think that is? Is that just a, um, you know, should be right mentality? I think that people don't see the big parties as being the vehicles through which they do the things they care about anymore. Like, I think that you've only got to look at the sides of the green movement and how many people get care about climate change stuff and how many people make personal decisions in that space to go, no, no, people are as, as or more political as they've ever been. It's just that 50 years ago or 70 years ago, they'd have been channeling that energy into one of the major parties and we're not doing that now we sort of have consumer boycotts and ethical purchasing and we try and sort of exert influence in other ways but the fact that we've abandoned the parties and the institutions in that way has kind of left them to rot for those who who are prepared to hang in there and play the game uh, I've said this uh, a few times, but just voting with your wallet, you know, that ethical purchasing, if you don't want something that's made by um, children, don't purchase from that brand, just stuff like that. That applies to climate change and uh, a lot of different things as well. All right, Lindy, that was absolutely interesting and fascinating, and I'd love to have you again uh, sometime soon again. All right, thank you. No worries. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Cheers. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you found this conversation with Lindy Edwards very interesting. If so, please consider purchasing Lindy's book as I'll be leaving a link in the description below. On that note, please also share this episode with your family and friends if you enjoyed this content as well as following the podcast to both Instagram and Twitter. Stay tuned until the next episode. See you later.